Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series this week, Power in Weakness. So turn to your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 to chapter 6, verse 2, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Christ's Ambassadors. I don't know if you know the name Kurusu Saburu. I don't know if that means anything to you, but if you're a history buff, I'm betting it does. He was the Japanese diplomat given the role of special envoy to the United States in order to broker a peace between the U.S. and Japan just before they went to war. You know, he did not know that while he was negotiating a way to see past the differences between the two countries, his own country, Japan, unbeknownst to him, had already committed to war and were drawing up an attack plan. And then on that fateful day when Ambassador Subaru brought his final demand for peace from Japan, he had the unfortunate role. It was a role that would mark his place in history. One hour before delivering his final demand for peace, a demand from his government, that is, one hour before the delivery was given, Japanese planes had already bombed Pearl Harbor. He came with a peace proposal not knowing that war had already begun. There's nothing more useless and deceptive than a diplomat who doesn't truly represent his government. You know, to this day, the infamy of deceit that surrounds that diplomatic activity has not been forgotten. In order for an ambassador to be a true ambassador, he must accurately and with full knowledge deliver everything his king or his government is saying and thinking. You know, furthermore, leaving aside the treachery of the Japanese government, all ambassadors are prevented from saying anything that is at variance with their government. No one should care two bits about what an ambassador personally thinks. It's quite simply irrelevant. An ambassador is only worthy of the title ambassador if he or she accurately represents his or her government. It should be that that talking or negotiating with an ambassador is exactly like talking or negotiating with a king or the governor or whoever represents the nation or the kingdom in question. Now, I mention this because the passage we're about to study has a claim. Paul will say that he's an ambassador for Christ, and as an ambassador, what he says is exactly what Christ says. Paul is on earth representing a kingdom from another place, and as an ambassador from that heavenly kingdom, he has a message from that king to us. So today we're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 to chapter 6, verse 2, and so let's start with verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So let's start with a context. Verse 18 begins with the words, all this is from God. Oh, what? So I'll go back to the previous verse, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, that is, anytime anyone is in Christ, or to use other language, anytime anyone is authentically born again or regenerated or converted, there's a fundamental change of nature. Before anyone is in Christ, that person by nature was a rebel against God's commands. But now upon their conversion, the old has passed away, the new has come. And says Paul, 
All of that is from God. See, that's one of the reasons why the Christian faith is never about moral reform. It's not about us doing better or trying harder or redoubling our efforts or or becoming more serious about God. You know, I once had a conversation with a woman. I, I think she was trying to be polite with me. She said, you know, Christianity is a wonderful religion. She said, if I were to become religious, I would certainly put Christianity at the top of my list of choices. Yeah, she was trying to be kind to me. And I smiled, but I had nothing to say. I mean, how could I respond you know, without being offensive? You think it's in your hands? All this is from God. So, you know, whenever anyone's born again, that person never credits himself or herself with choosing a morally superior religion. It was God's doing. It was God's mercy. It was God's grace. It was God who took our heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. All this is from God, not from us. And then Paul adds, not only did God do it, but he also took the initiative. God, through Christ, he says, reconciled us to him. He means to say the same thing that he said in Romans 5 verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And and here in 2 Corinthians 5.18, God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, reconciled us to himself. All the initiative is with God. He has moved in our direction. You see, we're not in the place to choose God. I mean, after all, how condescending to think we can. God chose to send his son. And that's the message that Paul has been preaching. And he repeats that thought in verse 19. In Christ, he says, that is, in the cross of Jesus, God was acting and taking the initiative and reconciling us to himself. Now, by the way, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd change the lyrics to the hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I think it's important to commit our hearts to following our Lord even unto death. That's not my objection to the hymn. I mean, my concern is that there is too much me-centeredness in the way that many of us talk about our faith. You know, I made a decision, we say. I committed my life to Jesus, we say. And I asked Jesus to come into my heart, we say. Look, it's not that that kind of talk is wrong. No, that's, that's not it. It's just that it's all that we talk about. You know, I've often wondered why in the way in which modern Western Christians talk about their faith, why so much of it is always about our initiative and our choices and our virtuous actions and the path that we have chosen to take. Again, if I had my druthers, I would change the lyrics of the hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus, and we would sing, God has decided to give me Jesus. Yeah, I made a choice. I'm not denying that. But unless God took the initiative, I would not have chosen. God has decided. God has reconciled us. In Christ, it was God who did it all. And I love the hymn that says, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found, was found of thee. You know, isn't it time, don't you think, to to state things the way the Bible does and start to give glory to God in this matter? So having stated that it was all from God, Paul now adds a phrase, first in verse 18, and then he repeats it in verse 19. He uses slightly different language. In verse 18, he says, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then in verse 19, God entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Now, here Paul shows he understands his role in God's plan. 
God called him to share the message of reconciliation with the world. Now, you might remember Acts chapter 9. Paul was then journeying to Damascus with a settled intention to imprison the followers of Jesus. And on the way, Jesus interrupted him and claimed Paul as his own. And then, of course, God called a man named Ananias to go to Paul, who is now blind. Listen to what God said to Ananias. It's recorded in Acts 9.15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And this is where we come to Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church. God called me to go to you, says Paul. And of course, we might remember that the only reason Paul ended up in Greece in the first place is because on one night, God gave him a vision of a man from Macedonia begging him, come over here and help us. And with that decision to cross the Aegean Sea and end up in Macedonia, which, by the way, is northern Greece, he then went south to Achaia, and he ends up in the largest city in Greece, which was the city of Corinth. And as we also know, that that decision to go to Greece, well, how do I say it? It was the most expensive decision that Paul ever made. You know, in some places he was thrown into prison, then he was beaten and stoned, sometimes entire mob riots. I mean, this message of reconciliation, at least in some places, was met with anything but a desire to be reconciled to God. But it really didn't matter, did it? I mean, after all, that's the gospel we're talking about. We didn't take the initiative to come to Christ. Indeed, it was God who took the initiative to reconcile a rebellious humanity to himself. This is where Paul's ambassadorship comes in. So we read verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So let's get back to that ambassador part later, but notice how the ambassador for Christ is operating. He's imploring. It's a heartfelt entreaty. The word implore means to earnestly beg. It's to plead with urgency. It seeks to get the hearer to understand how desperate their situation is. Be reconciled to God. June 2020, Back to the Bible Canada will be partnering with Back to the Bible India to conduct its third annual Bible teaching conference, hosting hundreds of Indian pastors across India, beginning in Delhi, then moving to Hyderabad and Chennai. Under the leadership of Dr. John Newfeld, pastors will learn the discipline of effectively teaching the Bible and sharing the gospel. This year, you can sponsor the attendance of an Indian pastor who may otherwise not have the resources to attend for only $55. It includes the cost of the conference, resources, travel, accommodations, and food. What a great investment in the church. Join us in equipping pastors in India. Call with your gift to support international initiatives or to send one or two or more pastors to the India Bible Teaching Conference this June. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit sendapastor.ca or backtothebible.ca. When Hudson Taylor first began to feel his heart stirring for the people of China, you know, some members of his denomination, and please remember this, this was the 1800s, and there were still some who were not convinced of the mandate of worldwide missions. 
And besides that, there were some extremists who took the matter of the sovereignty of God to some unbiblical conclusions. And well, at any rate, some of Taylor's denomination argued that under no circumstances should they support Hudson Taylor going to China. They argued that if God was interested in reaching the Chinese people, he would certainly do that without Hudson Taylor. Now, of course, that was half right. God could certainly reach the Chinese people without Hudson Taylor. I mean, there's no argument there. But as is true of all half-truths, they do lead to 100% error. I mean, the real question is never, what can God do? The real question is always, what has God chosen to do? Or what has God revealed that he will do? You know, Paul wrote Romans for a number of reasons, but one was to introduce the Roman Christians to himself and to his ministry. That's because he wanted to use the Roman church as his springboard to take the message of the gospel to Spain. You know, at that time, no one in Spain had yet heard the wonderful news of a Savior sent from God to die for their sins and to reconcile them to God. And so Paul was hungry to go. Indeed, his passion burned inside of him. And so listen to what he tells the Roman Christians. And here I'm reading Romans 10 verses 14 to 15a. How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? All that's a mouthful. But that part about being sent, I mean, that's the part in which Paul is communicating his need to have partners in this ambassadorship. But this is God's method of bringing his message to the rebellious children of Adam. The great king has a message, and he has sent an ambassador or a number of ambassadors to relay the message. And that says, Paul is who I am. And unlike that duplicitous pre-war Japanese government, this king, the king of heaven, is determined not to deceive people, but to tell them how they might be reconciled to him. So let's review. Paul thought of himself as Christ's ambassador. He was an authorized representative of the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Whenever Paul would speak, wherever he would preach, he would never speak his own ideas. He would rather speak the message that had been given to him. And by the way, this, I mean, here in in 2 Corinthians, is not the only time that Paul uses this image of being an ambassador. Listen to how he expresses himself to the Ephesian Christians. And here I'm, I'm reading Ephesians 6, verses 18 to 20. He's urging the believers there to be constant in prayer. And then he says, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador. And then he adds, because he's in prison at the time of writing Ephesians, he adds a most peculiar kind of ambassador indeed. I am, he says, an ambassador in chains. And that is the, the Ephesian kingdom. They, they hated the message from the king of heaven. And so they threw his ambassador in chains. But, but if he's a faithful ambassador, even under such conditions, he can't stop speaking that which his king demands he speak. So stop for a moment, shall we? Because it's time to make application. At the heart of the liberal Christian experiment lay the idea that that the world has changed. So the early liberals argued that if we're going to make the Christian faith relevant to the modern mind, 
They said we needed to reinvent Christianity and we need to make it more palatable to modern-day sensibilities. And so since in the early days of the Enlightenment, when philosophers like David Hume had argued that miracles were impossible, in response, early liberal Christians tried to create a story of Jesus minus all those offensive miracles. But the liberal experiment went on. You know, perhaps we also need a Christianity that's more conducive to modern understandings of human sexuality or human rights. And more than anything else, we need a Christianity devoid of all of that condemnation. So out goes the idea of sin. And, you know, Christ died because he loved us, said the modern liberal theologians, and certainly not to become our sin bearer, bearing up under the wrath of God. You know, indeed, if you don't know this, you should. In our day, there are all manner of theologians and preachers and pastors who now are arguing that to speak about Jesus paying the punishment for our sins on the cross, that the Father punished the Son on our behalf. Well, they say, that's just cosmic child abuse. No modern mind would ever accept that. If you're going to make the Christian faith relevant, they say, it's time to change some of that basic message. Now, several things I would say in response. First, how strange. I mean, first, we have a God who sent his Son to save us, but now... It's we who have to save the Christian faith by changing its message. Oh, how we, rather than God, have become the saviors in this message. It's fascinating. But think back on the language of an ambassador. I mean, what do we make of an ambassador who fears that his message might not be accepted and then says whatever is more palatable rather than conveying the message of his government? Well, now, That's not an ambassador at all. Look then, after in verse 20, Paul identifies himself as an ambassador of Christ. And then in verse 21, in a nutshell, he identifies the message that his king has commanded him to convey. You know, the ESV is the translation that I'm using here, and it it translates 2 Corinthians 5.21 as saying, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so in the ESV, the words, for our sake, begin the sentence as if to say, God sent his son for our sake, which, of course, is true. But most translations, when they're translating this passage, would follow the reading that we might find, for instance, in the New American Standard Bible. There it says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I think that is the better translation. So so notice it. He, that is the Father, made him, that is the Son, yeah, the Son who knew no sin, the Son who never sinned, that Son who became a man, that Son who lived a perfect life in obedience to the Father at all points. Remember 1 John 3, verse 5, it says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Never was any sin in Jesus. Back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Father made the Son, the sinless Son, to be sin. Indeed, not just to be sin, but to be sin on our behalf. It's called the substitutionary atonement. He, the sinless one, was substituted in our place. We were sin, but he took our sin upon himself. And that's what happened on the cross. Christ took upon himself our sin. 
our sin was so offensive. Indeed, our sin, our declaration of war against the Father, because that's what sin is. Nothing could forgive this sin except the sinless Son of God taking upon himself our sin. Our sins were so severe, so offensive, that they merited the appalling and cruel and horrifying death of our Savior. Don't you like that message? Does it seem to you that the Father thinks that your sins are much greater than than you do? Listen up. The message is not over, because here we have what's been often called the great exchange. The Son took your place and went to the cross. And you took the Son's place because you were credited with a perfect record of Christ's righteousness. He became sin and you became righteous. That's what God did. That's the true meaning of the cross. Now, as a good ambassador, Paul never changed that message up, and we must not either. Paul's still not done. In 2 Corinthians 6, 1-2, he says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul's working together with Jesus to make the message known. Don't receive the grace in vain. Don't reject the message. Now is the favorable time. See, Paul's not promising his hearers that they'll have tomorrow. I mean, tomorrow they might die. Tomorrow Christ might return. Today is the favorable time. Now is the hour. If Christ died for your sins, now is the time. Surrender to him. Trust in him. Turn your life over to him. Receive Christ. That's what Christ's ambassador says today. John, I'm wondering, what are the results of misrepresenting uh, something when you're an ambassador, misrepresenting your country, for instance? Yeah, most ambassadors that misrepresent their country are immediately removed from the post. And uh, I think that's really what we have here. Uh, If Paul is an ambassador of Christ, he must state exactly what the God of heaven is saying. And uh, that also, I think, is taken into our own lives. We, if we are to be ambassadors of Christ, We can never substitute our own message for the message of the gospel. We must remain on track. Uh, Stop trying to, you know, make the message more palatable. Let the message be what God has said it is. And uh, let's just be faithful ambassadors declaring what God has said. Uh, There's a huge message of that. It keeps us accountable before our Lord and Savior. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Power and Weakness, right here on Back to the Bible, Canada where we teach the Bible. Laugh Again, a ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada, has a profound impact on so many lives. In five brief minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened doors to people hearing the gospel or simply finding hope in difficult times. We've received so many notes and emails of deep appreciation for Laugh Again. Well, we're expanding our programming with Laugh Again TV. That's right, Laugh Again will be aired on YouTube to present Laugh Again Take 5. These are five-minute videos produced to reach a huge audience with a unique message of hope and joy found in Christ. So check out the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel and subscribe so you never risk missing an episode. For more information or to support the ministry of Laugh Again, 
Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.